Amarna is um, a modern name for, uh, not a modern name, but uh, was yeah, a relatively modern name for a site that was the capital of what's known as the heretic pharaoh. Uh, Almanhotep IV, who uh, ruled in Egypt in the 14th century, who uh, shifted the, the worship there from multitude of gods to a single god who happened to be the solar disk. And, and that became his capital. And uh, it didn't exist at the time we're talking about, but just so that we can have an orientation here between the uh, mouths of the Nile up here, you'll see the delta and the triangular shape again, uh, reflecting the shape of the Greek letter delta, which, uh, from which the term comes, uh, down to a swan down here, or Cyrene uh, in the Greek days, which uh, pretty much was the extent of Egypt in the days of both the Old Kingdom and the Middle Kingdom. We're talking about the Middle Kingdom right now. The New Kingdom would go beyond, clear down into what is today Sudan, and would extend clear up to the Euphrates uh, in the north direction. But uh, the Egypt we're talking about here was basically between a swan and the mouths of the Nile. So you'll notice that the cities are located uh, fairly close together, as I mentioned to you before, about a day's journey apart, give or take some. Uh, these are not all of the cities, but these are the primary cities, most of which were uh, the capitals of gnomes, or the provinces of, of early Egypt. So uh, as we talk about this a little bit, if you keep the map handy, this will be, I think, helpful. The city of Cairo would be today just north of Memphis and would engulf on right there where the delta begins. On is the Heliopolis. This is the city where uh, Asnath, uh, Joseph's wife, came from. The high priest was uh, headquartered there, high priest of the worship of Ra, or Ray. Have you ever heard, I'm sure you have, of Thor Heyerdahl's Ra expedition when he put together some papyrus rafts and floated across the Atlantic to prove in his mind at least, that uh, the uh, pyramids of Central America could have a relationship to the pyramids of Egypt to prove that e Egyptians could have sailed across to the New World. And he called it the Ra Expedition, named after the sun god that was uh, headquartered in Lower Egypt, particularly here at On. Memphis uh, today, a part of uh, Memphis is also under the outskirts of Cairo, but you can also go out to the site of ancient Memphis, and particularly Saqqara, just south of that. And uh, the, the earliest of the Great Pyramids uh, is located there. The so-called Step Pyramid is located at Saqqara. And it's the ancestor of almost all the other pyramidal structures that were built uh, in Egypt. Well, let's pray together. Our Father, as we study the scripture relative to a land which has persisted uh, these many thousands of years, and a culture that, although is radically different today from what it was uh, in the days of Joseph, uh, still has its roots in that ancient culture. And Lord, we know that you have allowed for this society to continue just as you have allowed heathen societies to exist in many parts of the world, and yet this does not in any way deny the truth of your word that Jesus Christ is the only way the only truth, the only life. And Father, I, uh, we are really grateful for the word that has been sent back into many of these lands, even though we know there is a really old church in, in Egypt, the Coptic church, which has been around since the first century, 
uh, still the vast majority of the people of that land today are in great need of the truth about Christ. And we're thankful, Lord, where the gospel is penetrating Mohammedan lands and where Islam uh, does show cracks in where uh, people are converted. And we trust that uh, this work will continue to go forward uh, with great strength and power. And Lord, we do pray that as we study the word today, it will be enlightening to our minds and to our souls. In Christ's name, amen. Any other questions about this map specifically before we move on? It's, it's obviously not very highly detailed, but at least you get, you, you see the relationship between the cities that were important to Jacob and Joseph over here, Hebron, Beersheba, and Kadesh Barnea. Uh, down here, and the distance is not all that great, as you can see. There's a scale down here gives you a distance of 100 miles, and so you can see how that relates uh, to this whole scene. But uh, this is the world now of Joseph, uh, from Eswan to the mouths of the Nile. And uh, he will be running back and forth, I think, this is quite clear from our understanding here, to do the job that the Lord has given him to do. I'd like to begin this morning with uh, verse 50 of chapter 41 of Genesis. Genesis 41, verse 50. Now before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, whom Asnath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bore to him. And Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for, he said, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. And he named the second Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. We'll stop there. The focus here is at least in part now on Asnath. Uh, I mentioned to you last time that according to Jewish tradition, uh, Asnath uh, forsook the ways that she had been raised, the pagan ways of the land in which she had lived, and she became converted to the God of Joseph. And, and even though the scripture does not say this specifically, I, I think we can believe that because of the powerful witness in the life of Joseph. Joseph was not a man whose uh, faith was hidden. He was a man whose, whose faith just ba basically drove his life. And all around him saw the reality of his God, even to the point where Pharaoh even acknowledged that Elohim was his God. And so... I think that whatever is the case with Asnath, she is uh, in sympathy with what Joseph is doing. And the two sons that would be born here are young men who will be raised in the faith. Now the question that can be asked here is, uh, since Joseph had this job traveling through the length and breadth of the land, how in the world uh, did she become pregnant these two times? Well. Whether she remained behind in, in the residence that was get, certainly given to Joseph, it doesn't say here, but you can just understand, that uh, uh, Joseph was given a residence there, probably a palatial place uh, there in the land, in, in Memphis certainly, uh, to be his primary uh, residence. But it's also possible and very likely that he was given one of the royal barges and that he, if you will, barged up and down the Nile on this royal barge, and that he took his wife with him, and that it, it served as both his headquarters as well as his uh, means of transportation as he traveled up and down the Nile River. As I mentioned last time, the scripture says he was for specifically given a chariot, 
and certainly he traveled by chariot, and, and probably the chariot was taken on board the barge. But to chariot 750 miles, I mean, you know, most of us find a 750-mile drive in a car a little exhausting, but you'd, you'd get out there in a dusty chariot and go rambling over dirt roads with no shock absorbers and, and you know, iron or wooden wheels. You're, you're going to recognize that that's probably beyond what uh, he would have wanted to do to, in order to do the job well. So I, I think basically uh, he traveled, and the Nile was the, was the means of transportation in, in Egypt. It was the uh, route that linked the whole country together, and it was the route by which most people traveled and most things were carried if any great distance was to be covered. Whatever was the case, during the years, the seven years of bumper crops in the land of Egypt, Joseph's wife gave birth to two sons. That's specifically mentioned. He gave them the Hebrew names of Manasseh and Ephraim. Probably, though, out of respect to the new land, to the Pharaoh he served, to the people that were around him, he probably also gave those sons Egyptian names. Possibly Egyptian names that had the same meaning as the Hebrew names. But the scripture only records here the Hebrew names because they're the ones that are important to the narrative. <coughs> You'll notice every once in a while... Uh, scriptures, the scripture does mention a, a non-Hebrew name given to somebody who is important, but uh, often it is not even important enough to be mentioned in scripture. Joseph now had someone of his own flesh and blood living there in the land, living with him. And so he named his firstborn Manasseh, which means basically in Hebrew, one who causes to forget. Now, when we understand the, name, the, the term forget, we, we don't think of it in the sense of he just completely forgot about his family and put them out of, their, out of his mind. No, I, that's, that's not the sense of it at all. But one who replaces the longing, one who diminishes the pain, one who causes him now to recognize that he's got a job before him to do. God has called him to Egypt to do a task, and so he can put his family out of his mind at least uh, in terms of this longing, this desire to go home, and be satisfied with what he has to do here. And this son will help him to be able to do that because he now has a strong connection with his new land because he has a wife who has borne him a son of his own body. And so now there's this, this close connection with the land that God has given to him. And his longings to go back to Canaan can now be uh, shunted aside or, or at least replaced. It certainly does not mean that suddenly he never remembered Joseph or Reuben or uh, Simeon or Levi or any of the others again. Certainly not. But he, he wasn't, didn't have this inner just, just longing, I've got to go home, I've got to go home, above and beyond everything else. I don't have it here on the outline, but I'd, I'd like to read a couple of familiar verses from Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Philippians 3, verses 13 and 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward... Oh, I better read 13 first. <laughs> Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. This is, of course, the resurrection from the dead and all that's associated with that. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, 
I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I, I think you probably can clearly see the connection, at least in my mind, between this passage and what we are talking about here in Joseph's life. Um, Paul is not saying in this passage where he says, uh, forgetting what lies behind. Paul's not saying, like Henry Ford did, history is bunk, you know, or, or, or that history is meaningless. He's not saying that we should forget history. What he's saying is that our, our longing can't be for that which happened before. You know, it's sort of like the person, you may have heard such a person who every time they get up to give a testimony, the testimony is exactly the same, the testimony of the day and the hour of their conversion. <laughs> Wonderful event in life. But, but certainly things have got to happen in our lives that are testifiable. <laughs> uh, since that time, God is doing something new. And, and God is, has been doing something new in Paul's life here. And so he's saying, forgetting those longings and, and, and what I had before, I'm pressing on now towards the goal, a prize that, that, that God has set before me. I've got a project to do now. All of this has built me to the person that I am. In, in one of my courses, I use a, a little uh, object lesson. I take a piece of paper and, and bend it into a cone. And I talk about the, the historical cone, which is sort of the idea that uh, as, you, as you look at a cone with a point at the top and the base at the bottom, and you consider that base to be uh, human civilization throughout history as it's moving upward to the moment and to the point where you or I stand at the peak of that cone in our, in our own historical background. And, and we are where we are because of all those who have lived before us and all that they have done. One has once said that no man, no woman is an island. And this is very true. We are all related to each other in more ways than just biological. We are related in technological ways, cultural ways, and all of this together. And so we are all dependent on, on that which has gone before us. But we need to look beyond that. We need to look ahead at what God has for us to do. Rather than worrying about the hurts that we've experienced in the past and letting those hurts from before make us inoperative in God's hands now, we need to put those things aside and, and, and let the blood of Christ cover them and move on to what God has given us to do now. Not be handicapped because of the past, because we're carrying. I mean, Joseph could have walked around and moped and groaned all of his life because he had been kidnapped out of his land. He'd been betrayed by his own brothers. He could say, where is God? What kind of God is this I serve? But not so. Joseph is now pressing on. Joseph is a faithful man, and, and as a result, he's a powerful example to us. God further blessed him by giving him a second son, whose name was Ephraim, which means, in short, doubly fruitful. I now have two sons, two men of my own body. God has doubled his blessing to me, and as a result, Joseph was overjoyed. Now, the epistle to the Romans would not be written for nearly two millennia from the time of Joseph, but Joseph, I think in his mind, even in his expression of naming uh, Ephraim, when we were over in Israel studying at the Institute of Holy Land Studies, the people keep saying, Ephraim, Ephraim, Ephraim. This is how you're supposed to say it. Well, everybody says Ephraim, so I guess we'll stick with that. But uh, 
I shouldn't have said that. I lost my track. <laughs> oh, he, uh, he, he was beginning to understand the truth of the passage that we so often quote to each other from Romans chapter 8, that God causes all things to work together for good to those that, are, that love him, to those that are called according to his purpose. Even though Paul said that about 2,000 years ago, that truth is universal under the authority of God and has always been the truth. It's, it's like we so often quote from Psalms, forever, O Lord, thy, thy word is settled in heaven. The only thing eternal on this planet besides our souls is the word of God. And the word of God is eternal and has always been so. And so the truth that we know today from Paul's writings is the truth that Joseph came to understand and I think expressed in naming Ephraim. Now, I, I think it needs to be understood, and I know we do, that not everyone who trusts and obeys God will be lifted from rags to riches or from obscurity to fame in this life, right? In fact, most of us will remain quite average and quite anonymous as far as the world is concerned. We won't end up on the front pages of the newspaper. And considering what usually is on the front pages of the newspaper, I'm sure we're quite glad that that's true. Unfortunately, the name Simpson, the college I teach, is quite a bit on the front pages, but it has an OJ in front of it, fortunately. Uh, and uh, there is um, no relationship, obviously, there. However, whether from rags to riches, we are personally listed, uh, lifted in this life, which won't be the truth for most of us. In the long run, from the eternal point of view, we are all lifted from our filthy rags to eternal riches by what God has done for us, right? And, and it doesn't make any difference whether nobody ever knows who we are except maybe a few friends and a few family members. And, and the rest of the world has never heard of us, never even knew that we lived. In fact, how many Christians down through the 2,000 years since Christ died do we know names of? How many of them made it into Fox's Book of Martyrs? Or into the writings of the uh, anti-Nicene or the post-Nicene fathers? How many people do we really know of that millions have lived Born-again Christians, very few, <laughs> a fraction of 1%. So, obviously, worldly fame is not to be ours for the most part, as it was for Joseph, but that eternal glory is there for us all, and it far outweighs anything this world has to offer. Paul also said in Romans 8, in the 18th verse, he said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. To me, that's one of the most wonderful and sustaining verses of all Scripture. That the sufferings of this life, whatever we must go through, come, as the worldly phrase is, hell or high water. None of it is so bad or are so debilitating that it even begins to compare with the eternal weight of glory, as it says in the King James Version. Millions of Christians have lived 
lives of great physical and emotional suffering and spiritual warfare. But the great glory of it all is that together we will all experience the truth of these passages that I've put on the outline there from the book of Revelation. I, I think it's good for us every once in a while to turn to the book of Revelation. And I don't mean to the story of the Antichrist or of the seals being broken and all hell breaking loose, but that's good too. But it kind of keeps us in things in perspective. But we need to turn to those passages which help us to renew our vision about what it is we're pressing forward to. What does it mean to press forward to the prize of the high calling in Christ? What does that mean? Well, let's read these well-known passages in the 20th and 21st and 22nd chapters of Revelation. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death, there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. What it's saying is that there will be eternal shalom. Peace in the deep Hebrew sense of that word. Chapter 22, verse 1. And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall no longer be any night and they shall not have need of the light of the lamp, nor of the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. The poorest of the poor, the dregs of society, the, the, the people who have been martyred for their death, uh, for, for their faith, will all experience the truth of reigning forever and ever with Christ. It's fantastic truth. And it should be the thing which drives us on, no matter how difficult life may seem, how our physical bodies may begin to deteriorate, and, and we begin to find ourselves unable to do what we used to be able to do. A lot of us have never been able to do what others can do. So there's not equity in this life at all, in, in even physical areas. But, but even more than that, the spiritual warfare that we're in the midst of. It's, it's raging, right, all around us. And it's hit this country in all its fury. And we need to just constantly encourage ourselves by the goal of what it is we're pressing towards. Not that we, quote, become so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good. I don't really know very many people like that. 
most of us are struggling with being too earthly minded to be of much heavenly good, really, <laughs> rather than the other way around. And, and uh, look at a man, Joseph, a man who, I, who, who was in balance and served his Lord effectively in this life. Let's, let's go back to uh, Genesis 41 and read the last verses of the passage uh, of the chapter. When the seven years of plenty which had been in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said, then there was famine in all the lands. But in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all Egyptians, Go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, you shall do. When the famine was spread over all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. And the people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe in all the earth. Can you imagine a boy who was a shepherd known to but a few becomes the one to whom all the world comes, using the word all the world, of course, obviously within the context of what we're talking about, the whole Eastern Mediterranean uh, world was, was coming here to Egypt and was having to acknowledge Joseph. Well, the seven years of bumper crops ran their course. Ever notice how that happens? <laughs> the seven good years, as it were, do tend to run their course. And quite often they're followed by years that aren't so good. It was no sage, but uh, recently in a, in a film we were watching, the guy said, well, I don't like it when things get too good. I don't like it when they get too bad. I like it to be right in the middle. <laughs> because then we don't have to you know, worry about it getting too bad. <laughs> because if it gets too good, then we're worried about it getting too bad. You know, I'd, it's kind of worldly philosophy there. But... Uh, it's the way it is in the thoughts of many. Vast quantities of grain, literally oceans of grain, were stored in dozens of centers from the Mediterranean Sea here in, in the north, in these cities uh, located up here in the delta, and then in all of these cities strung up all the way down, strung down all the way to Aswan. Uh, great storehouses were located in all these centers where the grain was held in preparation for this great famine. I, I think it's very probable that in the midst of all the abundance, the seven years when crops were just burgeoning all over the land, that many Egyptians thought, wow, this is wonderful, this is going to go on forever, we're in paradise, and began to forget the sword of Damocles, if you will, hanging over their heads, that is the seven years of great famine that were about to come. But Joseph had not forgotten Joseph had a task to do, and he was going up and down the Nile, working hard for seven years to make sure it was all, all that could possibly be gathered, the 20%, that is, was gathered and was properly stored and properly guarded. The confirmation of the wisdom of his plan was about to come. Remember, Pharaoh and his courtiers did not have God's word in front of them to turn to and say, oh yeah, God said it's going to be a famine. They simply had the word of Joseph. Again, this foreign 
young slave who interpreted Pharaoh's dream, how did they really know that he interpreted the dream correctly? He could have just dreamt it up at the last minute. <laughs> well, certainly God came along and God gave them the comfort and the confidence in their heart that this truly was the word of God. And that there was a God that, that Joseph honored who was sovereign in this situation. How they dealt with their own pantheon in the light of that, we're not told. How they thought about Ray and, and, and all the other gods and goddesses of, of Egypt in the light of the fact that this is the God who is going to bring it about to, to pass. There may, may have been those who began to doubt. But the seven years of drought would eliminate that doubt, right? And hammer home the truth of Joseph's interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams. So it was. Seven years of great drought struck the whole Near East. Now, Egypt was in the midst of that impacted region. Certainly, Arabia was impacted to the east, and, and what we call today Libya was impacted to the west. And we know that Canaan was impacted to the north. And, and because of the, uh, geologic, uh, the geographical factors involved here, certainly what is today Sudan to the south was impacted also. So we know that those regions were uh, suffering from this drought even as Egypt was. And yet in the midst of it all, food was available in Egypt. When the people came to the end of their own resources, they said to Pharaoh, what should we do? Well, they really knew what was going to happen. They knew all this was being bought and stored. They knew the dream and everything. So what they're doing is going to Pharaoh and saying, look, we've come to the end of our resources how are you going to go about this distribution? And so he said, go, to see, go see Joseph. And commanded them to do whatever Joseph required. What did Joseph do? He say, oh, you guys aren't skinny enough yet. Go away. <laughs> no. He opened the doors of the granaries and began to carefully meter out the grain to the people. And I think the grain was doled out according to need and need only. You couldn't just walk up and say, give me six sacks. You know, you, the, the, they would discover what your need was, how many living, were living in your, in your family, how far away were you from the granary, and, and you were given grain accordingly. Joseph had to ration the grain to see to it that everyone had enough for the full seven-year duration of the famine. The famine was so severe, and the passage keeps referring to this as a severe famine. Not just some modest little, you know, like we've had a drought in California for all these many years, and, and we've, you know, it's not good to have this drought. But what it means is you might not be able to fill your pool. <laughs> it, it doesn't mean that you can't eat. It means that Shasta Lake might come down so low that as many people won't come up to water ski uh, as, as usually do. It, it hasn't yet meant that people in California are going to be threatened with starvation. And I pray that it doesn't. But it did in Egypt. Because you see, there was no other resource than the Nile River. It was the Nile and the Nile alone. Even today in Egypt, from the delta all the way up to at least Eswan and beyond, the average rainfall in that whole region does not much exceed four inches per year. Now, 
that is not only serious in the sense that that's not very many inches, but remember, Egypt is on the edges of the Sahara Desert. So we're talking about a very high potential for evaporation and, and transpiration. There is in geography what is known as the evaporation-transpiration ratio. And that has to do uh, relative precipitation-evaporation-transportation ratio. And that has to do with not only how much rain or snow falls, but what is the potential for evaporation of that water and for transpiration of it through the vegetation. And if the evaporation and transpiration uh, portion of the ratio is too high, then it doesn't matter how many inches fall, it's still a desert. And in Egypt, we have a situation where it is a desert without the Nile. And so when the Nile is cut down or cut off, they have no other resources. They had no other resources. Now, of course, they've got Lake Nasser, which they've backed up into Sudan for 300 miles. But in those days, there were no lakes uh, to hold in, in reserve. There were no other water bodies. There were no, no way you could drill down far enough to reach some underlying body of water. So when famine came to Egypt as a result of the drying of the Nile, it was a very devastating event. The bulk of the population of Egypt would have probably either died directly of famine or of malnutrition-induced diseases. And, and hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of people would have died had it not been for the plan of grain storage. Now for us today, we, we think about this, we have to recognize that for this famine to have happened meant that God probably interdicted the rainfall up in the Ethiopian highlands because that is where the principal flow that produces the flooding of the Nile comes from. Uh, the Horn of Africa, where Ethiopia is, sticks out there, and, and part of it, you know, is very deserty because our troops were recently there in Somalia. But up in the Ethiopian highlands, precipitation does fall. And uh, that precipitation comes uh, heavily during what we would call, in the months that we call summer. And it's actually technically summer there, too, because it is north of the equator. But uh, that precipitation falls and it comes down the Blue Nile and then merges with the White Nile and forms the Nile Nile, if you will, and goes all the way uh, to the Mediterranean Sea. And it's the flooding that comes from the great flow of the Blue that, uh, because the White Nile flow is, is constant all the time, because it comes out of two big regulators, Lake Victoria, which is the, a huge lake, as you know, and the water flow out of that is pretty regular most of the year. And then what's called Al-Sud, which is a huge swamp, one of the largest swamps on all the planet, where the Nile just uh, empties out into this big swamp and then recollects at the other end and, and goes north. And of course, half the water is evaporated through this tremendous spread of the water in, in the swamp. So the flow of the White Nile is very little, varies very little. But the Blue Nile varies 64 times from its lowest level to its highest level. And so that produces the flood, flooding. And so what happened was certainly God interdicted the rainfall in the Ethiopian highlands, which therefore produced drought in that region also. Well, news spread quickly that there was grain in Egypt. Undoubtedly, people from neighboring lands who had any money hired caravans or formed caravans and went to Egypt in order to buy this grain. 
Certainly such caravans, particularly if they passed through very many regions or lands along the way, had to be heavily guarded caravans because a caravan of food traipsing through a land of starving people would be quickly the object of many people's desires. And uh, fortunately, in the case of Jacob and his sons, they were just adjacent to Egypt. There wasn't far that they had to travel, and through most land they traveled, <coughs> pardon me, to get to Egypt was uninhabited. So it, it wasn't such a, a, a serious thing for them. You've all certainly heard of people, or at least about people, who brag of how they earned their wealth by their great skill. How they have so abundantly provided for their family and their loved ones by the sweat of their brow. Turn to a passage like this and you discover that such thinking is, is folly. Because the sweat of our brow can dry up any minute. <laughs> the strength of our bodies can evaporate. Uh, people in high positions can lose their job overnight and not find another one. We do not provide because of our great skill and our strength. We provide out of the grace of God. Here we see clearly that prosperity is allowed or provided by God himself. The seven years of, br of bumper crops in Egypt were God-given because it was part of God's plan. It wasn't because the Egyptian Institute of Agricultural Studies, you know, discovered a new hybrid a, a version of uh, the grain that multiplied and, and gave them this great abundance. No, it was God's blessing. It was God's blessing that brought this abundance to this land. And God can remove it at any time by his own command. Even in the greatest country, such as the United States, where food is abundant, even in hard times, most Americans don't have to starve. But that can stop. That can be changed at God's allowance or at God's command. The story of Joseph to us, I think, of Job, the story of Job reveals to us something very important in understanding that, of course, the perpetrator of evil is Satan, right? Of course, they talk about a lightning bolt that strikes out of the sky and, and starts a big forest fire. They call it an act of God, right? In the insurance papers, it says, well, barring an act of God, you'll be insured for this, that, and the other thing. Well, that's simply because they don't know what else to credit it to. But uh, we know that evil is perpetrated by Satan. But Satan is yoked, reined in by God Almighty. And that's the whole purpose of the story of Job, our understanding there that it's by God's allowance that Satan is able to do what he does. And it's only by God's permission that God's people can be touched. And you and I can be very grateful for that. Because if Satan had his way, none of us would be sitting here today. We'd be all six feet under if, if we're true believers in Christ and living for him. Satan would rather have us all six feet under because then we wouldn't be light and salt. We wouldn't be testifying to anybody else. People would look and say, whoa, as soon as you become a Christian, you're killed. That doesn't sound like a good thing to do. So, uh, but, but God preserves us. Day by day, God preserves us. And sometimes we see it when, you know, we're almost in a head-on collision, but we, we, we miss by an inch and we think, whoa, God preserved us. But we don't know how many times he preserves us every moment of every day. 
you know, with the, the old statement is, uh, we're all one heartbeat from eternity. <laughs> and Satan, I think, is perfectly capable of stopping our hearts. But God does not allow it within his providence. When difficulty comes in our lives and we find ourselves flat up against the wall, God has allowed it for a reason. There is a purpose for it. And sometimes we don't discover that purpose in this life. Sometimes we go to our grave wondering, well, why in the world did that ever happen? And we don't see why it happened. But God knows. And God had in it a greater blessing as part of his plan. Let me, let me turn to the end of the book of Job. I like the end better than any other part of the book of Job, actually. Unfortunately, not every story in Scripture is a happily ever after story. But... Uh, Certainly, this one is. Job 42, beginning at verse 10. And, of course, we all understand uh, the story of Joseph. And, you know, after you get through the second chapter of Job, uh, uh, I mean of Job, after you get through the second chapter of Job, in between is all this stuff with Job dealing with all his <laughs> comforters, such friends. And, and now we, we come to the culmination of it all. And in verse 10 we read, The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. <clears throat> he could have said a lot of things about his friends, and he did say some things. But the scripture says that he prayed for them. And the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him, and they ate bread with him in his house, and they consoled him and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought on him, actually had allowed to happen to him. And each one gave him a piece of money, each a ring of gold. The actual term there, which is translated piece of money, is, is a very uh, hazy uh, Hebrew word, which is thought to have meant a quantity of silver equal, equal to the value of a lamb. So each gave him such a piece. Verse 12. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. And he had seven sons and three daughters. And he named the first, now this is referring to his daughters, Jemima and the second Keziah and the third Karamhapak. And in all the land no women were found so fair as Job's daughters. And their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his grandsons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. Well, he went through a hell, but God blessed him. And God multiplied to him all these things in his life. Now, we may go through a really, really difficult time and not experience this same earthly blessing. But that is really immaterial compared to the eternal blessing we've already read about. Because that is so great that anything in this life is puny in comparison. To, to be as Joseph was, prime minister of the wealthiest and most powerful land that we know about in that day, was, was a puny blessing compared to the eternal glory that he would experience. As we reign Forever with Christ, the Lord, King of kings and Prince of princes. 
And we really have to keep that in mind. Because the poorest of us, those amongst us who have the least of this earthly possessions, will not be denied an equal share in eternal glory from, from the believer who has much of this world's possessions. God is into fairness. <laughs> he is into equality. We have these efforts in this country, as you know, to create equality so much that we create an inequality in the opposite direction. And that's because humans don't know how to bring equality. We are not fair-minded as a people, as human beings. But God is. And God brings it all out right in the end. This passage in, going back to Genesis again, I think also teaches us the importance of preparing for the future. Not excessively, not in such a manner that it becomes compulsory, uh, uh, not compulsory so much as compulsive, or a cause for anxiety. We have known people, born-again Christians, they profess to be anyway, who were putting so much away for the future that they were denying the needs, the current needs of their family. That, that is not what scripture talks about. We're, we're to prepare for the future, but we're to do it in a, in a proper and non-anxious way. Scripture clearly teaches that we are not to be anxious about tomorrow, right? Because anxiety produces what? Does anxiety produce wealth? <laughs> No, it produces a headache, it produces ulcers. It produces a lot of things besides wealth. And of course, it certainly demonstrates a lack of faith in the fact that God really cares for our every need, everyday need. But the Word does teach us that we are to wisely provide for tomorrow. The Bible does not say that we're never to save or to prepare ahead of time. Let me just read one a passage here from Proverbs 6. Go to the, ver, verse 6, Proverbs 6, 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. Prepares for the winter. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and your poverty will come in like a vagabond, and your need like an armed man. There are those who do not prepare for the future in the name of, quote, faith, or trusting God for everything. In what reality is that they're either too lazy to do what they need to do to provide for the future, or they're so oriented towards this moment that they spend it all now for the pleasure of the moment, and Take no heed for tomorrow. Paul informs us in 1 Timothy that the person who does not provide for his own, especially for those of his own household, denies the faith and is worse than an infidel. Uh, try to tell me the scripture doesn't talk about practical things like providing for one's own family. Scripture says if we don't do it, you know, we choose not to, we're too lazy, that we're worse than an infidel. That's a very, very strong statement. 
A wise man, a wise woman, sets aside a little for the future. But not to the point that we store up treasures here on earth where moth and rust corrupts, right? But where we prepare for that need down the line that may come. Wise use of physical resources is commended as preparing us for spiritual, wise use of spiritual resources. And uh, we'll, we'll stop with this passage in Luke chapter 16, which highlights this point. Luke 16.10 He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. He who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. If, therefore, you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous mammon, who will entrust the true riches to you? If we cannot even be faithful with the physical things that God has given, how can He trust us with the eternal matters, which are so much more important? And Joseph is such a powerful example of that truth. A man who was faithful to God even in the pit of prison so that God could trust him with the salvation of the ancestral individuals to Messiah with the messianic line. So Joseph, I think, is a powerful, powerful example to us. Well, next week we'll finish this chapter, which we almost did, and uh, we'll move into chapter 42, which many people really get excited about because of uh, Joseph's brothers coming to see him and not knowing him. You know, I, I, I always love those kinds of mysteries and, and kind of, uh, what do you call it, local boy makes good type uh, things or local girl, whatever.